please open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. So we're going to be reading 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, 7 through 11. And God's word says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks, oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Thank you for reading that passage of Scripture. Chris, I appreciate that. As we look at this text, you might be wondering why it's not in Philippians. Well, there are a couple reasons. First, sometimes it is good to take a break, but second, we have our, we call our kickoff Sunday today, and so it's a good reminder for us to, to rethink and renew our minds and hearts and commitments about what God has called us to do in this life and how we should live. And so as we look at this passage in 1 Peter I think it aligns well with uh, some of the goals we should have as God's people living a short and temporary life in this world. In fact, in our Bible study on Friday morning with the men, one of the men suggested they did not have enough time in this life left to mess around getting it wrong. I, I appreciated the thought. I think that's something every Christian should have, whether they're 14 or 40 or 80. That is, we don't have enough time left in this life to mess around getting it wrong. And you think about what, what God calls us to and how he calls us to live, and this passage energizes our thinking and shapes our values so that we don't get it wrong. If you look at that first phrase, and if you really want, I have five points for this morning's sermon, those of you who are eager beavers and trying to think through how to space out your sheet and get it all dialed in. If you have the notes, they're there in front of you. There should be very little guesswork. But the first thought is really an introductory thought, the first point. And you begin in verse 7 of this text, and it says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore. So he starts with this, this statement, this theological claim, and he says on the basis of this claim, these things should be coming out from it in the lives of the believer. Well, let me just start, start by helping you think through this in a way that's rational. The way we understand the world and what we value and what we treasure changes our beliefs and our behaviors. You can go through all of world history and see that this is the way our world functions, this is the way humanity functions, this is the way as individuals, as cultures, as nations, we function. For instance, you go back to the 1840s, and California was, was not a state, it was barely populated and someone finds gold in Northern California. And now we have what's called the gold. So people cross the country in hopes of cashing in on this fortune that's just sitting in the mountains ready to be claimed. And California explodes its population because nothing new happened. We just became aware of what was there. Right? Like, it's not as though in 1838 God peppered the hills of California with gold. It's that we discovered something that, to be, that is true. We realized it was true, and it shaped the perception and the values and the movements and the behaviors and the thinking of our country. And 15 years later, we have built a railroad to Sacramento all the way from Iowa because we wanted to get that gold. I mean, just imagine California trying to build a railroad nowadays. We'd be trillions of dollars in debt, and the railroad would go from Des Moines to Nebraska. It would not get to California, and we would still have the gold in the hills. 
I just say, I say that as introduction to the thought that what Peter does at the beginning here is he reminds us that there is a treasure and a value that we should consider and it should cause the Christian's life to be shaped differently than the non-believer. And the surprising kind of there's gold in those hills types of statement is the beginning of verse 7 when he says this. He says, the end of all things is near or is at hand. And that is to energize. It's, it's a foundational thought that changes and shapes the way we view the world, our family, our culture, our coworkers, our children. It shapes all of it as a foundational thought. The end of all things is at hand. If you were to go back, in fact, do this with me really quickly. Look in chapter 1, verse 17. This is both a comforting and fear-filled statement. The end of all things is at hand. Verse 17 of chapter 1, if you, are, if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile. If God judges impartially, that is, he doesn't look at you and be like, oh, I like you, you're good, don't worry about your sin. Nor does he look at you and say, you know what? I didn't like your parents. I'm just going to choose not to like you. There, there's a clear-eyed assessment of your life. And when you stand in front of God, he will unwaveringly, unflinchingly evaluate and respond to your behavior. You have to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ to know this is true. His most beloved son suffered his undiluted wrath because he was declared to be sinner. When God looks at you, you will not stand in a better, more favorable, more loved state than Jesus. And if God unflinchingly poured out his judgment on Jesus, his own precious son, what do you think will happen to you when you stand in front of his presence as a sinner, unforgiven, fully accountable for all your deeds? This is why it would cause fear. But I think for, I think for the believer, it's not merely a terror there's also a motivational element to this judgment. In fact, come forward to chapter 2. Jesus is looking forward to this judgment. We look at the death of Christ, verse 23. You, you could go back to verse 22 and recognize Jesus as innocent. That hopefully is not a surprise for you. Verse 23, when he was reviled, speaking of Jesus, he did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to whom? It doesn't say God, it says what? The one who judges. Now, when you think of a judge, you might be mentally jumping to certain places in your mind. You could jump to maybe a courtroom. Now, in a courtroom, everyone who's in that courtroom, generally speaking, in our legal court, is there because someone or some evidence has pointed at them and said they might be guilty. And the judge and the jury are there to help ascertain whether or not you're guilty. So in a court, the judge is almost always threatening penalty. But think about this maybe in a sports competition, where if you do well, the judge would reward you with a, a good and favorable judgment that would help your scorecard or your evaluation lead to a reward and a victory. Like judges are not always negative, even though I think with our courtroom context, we almost always look at them as either declaring us guilty or not guilty, but the not guilty is just, you get to go home. But God is not like that. If he is, if he is evaluating his son and Jesus is eager to be judged, do you think Jesus is going to get a favorable or an unfavorable judgment? Is Jesus going to get rewarded and honored and glorified, or will he be punished when he sees the Father as his judge? He'll be rewarded immensely and gloriously so that he'll be given a throne and dominions, and he'll be king everlasting over all things forever. Right, so he's going, he's going to look forward to this reward as a moment of vindication in which even though the world judged him and condemned him sinner, and even though as the one who bore our sins, God judged him sinner then, God has now highly exalted him. But that's not all that's going on in that verse. If you look again, 
He is looking forward to the one who judges justly. Who else would get judged in that verse? He is mocked and prosecuted, and he says nothing because he trusts the one who judges. Well, what happens to the guilty, the, the one who's condemning Christ, the one who's reviling Christ, the one who's prosecuting Christ? What happens to them in God's judgment? There is, there is a sense in which Jesus Christ is looking forward to that vindication because the people who wronged him will answer to God. And this is the call of both the Old and the New Testament. God says vengeance is... Now let me just ask you. Would you rather be having me mad at you or God Almighty mad at you? When God says vengeance is mine, I will repay that is not something that we should look at as those who are being hurt sometimes as a lesser punishment. If you have the chance to have a mere human upset at you and angry at you and even a little bit vindictive and hurting you, or you have a chance to replace them and have God angry at you, you tell me you would pick God. I'm going with a human every time. As miserable as that may be, and this is Jesus' point, is he is entrusting himself to the one who judges you're to continue on, you'd see again in chapter 4, in verses 4 and 5, this awareness of the judgment of God motivates us to rest when life is uncertain and hard. It motivates us to work and labor. If you look in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, with respect to this, he's gone through kind of this list of, of I'll call it sins, but it's kind of the sins that look and promise joy, look like they will promise joy. Verse 3, if you were to go back. For the time has passed for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless, idolatry. The Bible's saying, hey, hey, you know better than to get involved in this stuff. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. Isn't that interesting? You don't join them in their sin, so they, they criticize you. But they will give an account to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That is, God will resurrect everyone to judgment in the future. So, so one of the reasons a believer doesn't join in this list of kind of party type of sins that look like they promise a lot of fun is because we know we will give an account to God. And even if we were to die in this life, there's no escaping the fact that one day we stand in front of the God who made us and answer for all that we do. So when we come down to verse 7, he says the end of all things is at hand. He is recalling the fact that for the last several chapters, he has seasoned the believer's understanding of the world to know that there is coming a time of judgment and assessment, reward and punishment, and that everyone will be responded to by the God who judges everything with a righteous assessment. You can imagine if you are heading towards the conclusion of your schooling that you look forward to final exams with a little bit of fear and anticipation. If you do well, maybe a good job is for you on the other side. If you do poorly, you might be in school next year too. And there's that anticipation, knowing that this test will reveal and result in a goodness or a sorrow. The believer, knowing that Christ has paid for our sins, if you were to go back to chapter 2, it makes it clear. Our sins are carried by Christ in chapter 2, 23 and 24. He has borne our sins in his body on the tree so that we might live to righteousness, it says. So we come and we look at this judgment. He says, in light of this judgment, do this. Let's just make that really clear, that the believer having a certain conviction of God's judgment has that as their foundation for how they pray. Okay, so, so point one is, believers have a certain conviction about God's judgment. Right, we have this conviction, God is going to reward and assess us. God is going to give us the goodness of living faithfully for him, or, or take from us what we think we might deserve if we've done it with sinful motives or without Christ as our center of desires. Okay? Moving on then. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Okay, in light of the fact that God is judging, he calls us to be clear-minded. 
So you look, look again, it says to be self-controlled. That has the idea of being prudent, focused, um, being sound of mind and thought. And then he has almost a partner word, sober-minded, which has the idea, if you were to take it literally, not drunk. I mean, it has the idea of alertness, their clear thinking in how they look at the world. Rather than being rash and emotional and driven by passions, they're able to think about the world with a clear evaluation and assessment that leads to the truth. Now, why is it so important to think well? Going back to the text, for the sake of your, your prayers. Okay, so in light of God's judgment, we pray. But here's how we pray. With a clear, thoughtful mind that sees the world and thinks of the world and assesses the world in light of God's judgment. Well, this transforms the prayer from maybe a shallow, superficial prayer to a rich and thoughtful prayer. You're like me, there are times where maybe you would look back on your prayer life as somewhat shallow, or even a particular prayer as a shallow prayer. Like, Lord, please give me this job because we could really use the money. Now, let me ask you, how much of that money is going to make it past Judgment Day? And this is why Jesus calls for us to lay up treasures in heaven. So sometimes we're praying for prayers that are merely about this life. They have nothing to do with the life to come. How much of this world is going to make it into heaven? How much of this world is going to make it into eternity? Well, some of it? Now, it's not a trick question, but I think I tricked some of you. Will anything in this world make it into eternity? Yes. All y'all. No, think about that. Oftentimes we pray for the stuff. We pray for the comfort. We pray for responses in life that give us feelings of, of security. Maybe we're praying for health. Maybe we're praying for a, a, an employer to change so that we have a more enjoyable employment. Right? We're, we're praying for the types of things that actually are inconsequential for eternity, but they deal with consequential stuff. They deal with people and us. And often we're praying for the stuff that doesn't last and ignoring the stuff that does. I mean, perhaps instead of praying for a different boss, you would pray for an opportunity to speak to him of Christ for the redemption of his soul and the change of his character to be someone who loves the Lord rather than just that God would give you a different one. Right, like, this guy will live forever in heaven or under God's judgment in hell. And all we can think of is, next week I really want to go to work on Monday and not see him. And we think like that, and God is telling us, in light of judgment, our prayers should be clear-minded. They should be given with an assessment of this world that reflects the fact that we know God's judgment is coming on us and others. And God has put you in this place of testing and pressure that you might glorify and honor his name and you're just like please let off the pressure there is more honor for christ and often more honor for his people when the testing and the pressure is turned to its highest intensity than when he relieves the pressure and intensity and puts us in a place of comfort we just want to be comfortable and often we're doing so in our prayers we're praying for release and comfort rather than christ's honor and glory a clear-minded, sober assessment recognizes God does not enjoy our suffering, but our suffering is often with his good purpose and grace in, in mind that he might lead us to it. All right, so we pray better, richer, more thoughtfully when we keep the end in mind. That's a foundation for good prayer. Now I want you to look back at the text and I want you to notice something really carefully. In verse 8, seven he talks about prayer in verse eight then he moves and he says above all loving whom one another verse nine show hospitality to whom in verse 10 serve you have this repetition of one another and here's what he means when he uses that phrase. Almost throughout the whole New Testament, when you see that phrase, one another, you should be thinking, 
one believer to another in the context of the believers called the church. All right, so, so Peter, excuse me, let's call him Paul there. Peter is calling upon the believers to recognize that this impending judgment should energize them in the context of the community. Now, please do not hear me to be saying, don't treat your wife in a loving way. That's not my point. My point is, though, Peter's not considering your wife. He's telling you in the context of the believers, this is what you should be doing. And he gives us three more things in addition to this rich prayer life. In light of God's judgment, not only do we have a rich prayer life, we also have a loyal love for God's people. A loyal love. Look, look again in verse 8. Above all, what's that next word? Keep loving. It's actually in the Greek, this idea of the ongoing. He's not condemning them for a lack of love, but he's saying, don't let your love grow cool. Don't stop loving one another. In fact, that idea of earnestly has the idea of with perseverance, with a resoluteness, so that sin or injury doesn't cause it to stop. You all know, if you look in the mirror, that you've messed up when it comes to the people around you. You've sinned against them, you've hurt them. You're thoughtless, you're forgetful. We can recognize this about ourselves. And I think often in the context, context of, of the family unit, we recognize that and we overlook it. But when it comes to church, somehow we feel like we shouldn't have to endure. Look again at what this challenge is. It's in the context of church. Love one another with this sincere love because what does sincere love do? It covers a multitude of sin. What does that assume about the community of believers? There's a, what type of, a, a multitude of sin? Okay, so I know this, and every once in a while I get the feedback, like, man, you know, I go to church, and I feel like I'm the only bum who's, like, really struggling with this gnarly stuff in my life, and I just feel like no, one, no one's, like, as gross as I am. And I hate, like, I, I don't want to, like, say something really unkind, like, no, no, you're really gross. Sometimes I want it just for fun. But, but really, the fact is, if we knew what was going on between your ears, if we saw your thought life, if they saw some of the, the counseling that happens within meetings with our church people or meetings with our pastors, they go, like, oh, no, I'm doing all right. Like, this is normal. Why? Because we're sinners. So here's the call. Loyal love does not love when it's only comfortable, but is resolved to love for the good of the other person. Okay, so, so the measure of your love is not how you feel. The measure of your love is how you promote in them Christ-likeness. This is why love covers. Because if someone's pursuing Christ and they fail or stumble, you don't need to pop a flag out for everyone and be like, hey, sinner here. Because they're following and pursuing Christ. You know, the process of church discipline leads to publicity of sin. But that's for the unrepentant sinner. This would be in the context of the failings and, and sins for which the person's already pursuing grace. And our publication of that would not help them. And so we don't publicize it. Instead, we encourage them by praying for them in light of God's judgment. We pray for them to pursue Christ. We encourage them to pursue Christ. But in fact, we would never highlight, showcase, or shame the other person's sin in public. Because we just simply care more about them than how we feel, than our personal justification. Because honestly, sometimes the reason we publicize someone's sin is because it makes us look better. Right? Like, yeah, your marriage is kind of having a hard time. Well, it's her fault. Makes, maybe doesn't actually make the guy look good, but maybe he thinks it makes him look good. Okay, here's, here's, here's like the argument so far that Peter's laid for us. In light of the Lord's coming, when I think clearly about his coming, about the temporary nature of the world I live in, the stuff I own, and the people I work with, the people I live with, the people I love, it changes the way I pray. When I remember, it's, it's soon coming to an end. His coming is near changes the way I pray, it also changes the way I love. I now have a loyal love because the one thing I can take with me into eternity is people. The one thing that matters is my ministry to the people Christ died to save. 
the, the ways in which I sin most grievously against the Lord is when I sin against the people he died to save. Number three, kind of in that logical argument. So we start with the, the Lord's coming, prayer, loyal love, and now we move forward. It's not only loyal love, we also have a costly care for God's people. Costly care for God's people. So, so we're moving down to verse 9. It says, show hospitality to one another. I will tell you that our church is one of the most hospitable places I've ever known. And that is just as it should be. That is a mark of God's redeeming, sanctifying grace. And, and I don't want anyone in our church to hear me like waving a finger saying, you guys need to fix it. But I do think we should look at this and not celebrate and relax, but look at this and be energized for more of it. That we would recognize that hospitality in others is a sign of God's grace, and we'd be jealous for that richness of God's grace in our lives by caring for others. Why was hospitality such a big thing in the early church? Let me give you a couple reasons that I think are helpful. They didn't have hotels. Right, like, you're, you're, you're an itinerant preacher, and we know the New Testament's filled with them. Paul and his, his band moved through communities, and like for, in Ephesus, they're in Ephesus for 18 months. You know, so when, when Paul and his band come through, and you're like, yeah, yeah, we'll take a couple guys. You know, Titus and Timothy, we have a back room. You get single guys can stay there. After a year, they're still there. And they haven't paid you for any food. And you're thinking you're like Thessalonica, three Sabbaths, and they're gone. And we're on Sabbath 53. And they're still there. And they're not even talking about leaving. Like they're not even like, hey, when should we move on? They, you haven't heard that conversation yet. And all of a sudden you're like, man, Timothy eats a lot. Grocery bill's going up. And he's not slowing down. And he likes filet. He's not okay with like ground beef. He wants the good stuff. Look at the text. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. When you have itinerant speakers coming through, when you have the church that's somewhat mobile but without, without professional hospitality places like hotels, the place you go to is homes. Now, when Peter starts out this letter, he writes it to the, to the dispersed. Remember, he calls them exiles. I think there's probably a... a a little bit of a double meaning there. We're exiles, as in this world is temporary, but they're also scattered from Jerusalem. The New Testament is filled with the poverty um, of the churches. For instance, um, Philippi, out of their deep poverty, gave to Paul. Their collection in Ephesus was to go to the poor of Jerusalem. When you have churches in, in different Regions raising money because of how poor a church is, physically unable to care for the needs of their poor. People are literally going without food. And you have a guest come through and stay at your house for a couple weeks. It's not merely like, okay, kids, I guess we're not going to put you in the sports leagues this year. It's like, honey, how do we do this budget so we have food on the table for our kids? You can imagine that grumbling and the quiet whispers of a wife for, to a husband like, can you please tell them to go to the Smiths? We don't have enough money. Would have been very real responses. I think there'd be a, kind of a third element to this is that churches didn't have buildings. So where did the church meet on Sunday morning? Acts 2 makes it clear they were in homes. So you'd sign up for a small group and they, they're there five years later. They're still small grouping in your house. And it's getting old. You have probably all had the joy of hosting someone and finding a broken something or something. You know what I'm saying? Like you go into the restroom and, not that this has ever happened, and something's messed up in the restroom and company just left. And you got to do some cleaning or some work or some repair. Or your kid's toys are broken and they say it's not their fault. And this time you might actually believe them. Hosting is expensive in time, in effort, in comfort, in real cost. This is why he's lining it up. He's saying, God's judgment is coming, so be hospitable. And you might be going like, really? Hospitality? 
He is talking about the real care, the real concern of people within the church, and it may require from you more than you want to give. Like the dad whose child says, hey, dad, I'm going to go out with some friends. Can I have a few bucks so I can buy dinner? Dad says, sure, my wallet's on the table. And he sees like three 20s go out the door. He stops the child and says, hey, I thought you were taking like 10 bucks. And she's like, well, you said take what I need. And all of a sudden, expectation overwhelms what you thought you would have to give. And your heart wants to grumble. Literally has that idea of those low notes that are said under your breath. It's almost like in your own mind, you're taking the person to court and trying and convicting them of overwhelming your generosity and taking advantage of you like their mosquitoes sucking you dry. You're just talking about it to yourself as you're convicting them of wronging you. He says, hospitality should be given without that type of reserve, without that type of grudging, grumbling complaint. So think about that. In light of God's judgment... Not only do you pray, not only do you have a loyal love when you're sinned against, you open up your world to care, even when it's costly. Last application is the most extensive one he gives. To show hospitality without grumbling, finally he has this, after the costly care, serving God's people with our gifts. I actually have nine sub-points here. Some of you are like, oh no. I'm, I'm going to give them to you relatively quick and then kind of try to process them with you. Starting in verse 10, let me read it and then I'm going to go back and highlight those, those subpoints. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. With, oh, I almost jumped back to it without grumbling. One another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now that amen at the end is just an affirmation of may it be. He's affirming that this is a good thought that all Christians should agree with and buy into. Okay, so let me give you really quickly uh, kind of my, my nine thoughts here. First is each So who has been given a gift? Each person is an individualizing term. That means every believer since the church began in Pentecost, really almost since the death of Christ, until and through this day, until he returns, every single Christian, regardless of age, nationality, ethnicity, every single Christian has a gift. Each person. So if you're nine and you're in this room and you claim to know Jesus Christ, you have a gift. If you think you're giftless, God does not agree with you. This is a real story, and I'll be brief here. One Christmas, my mom labeled all my gifts to my brother. We've been told not to complain. So I'm sitting there on Christmas morning, and my brother has this massive pile of gifts. And I have like three gifts. Grandma, grandma, aunt, and uncle. Mom and dad's gifts, nowhere to be seen. The church is not like that. You have a gift. Each of you has a gift. No one can complain. No one has an excuse. Each is also a gift. Now hear this well then. God has given you something you have no right to. It is not yours by merit. You own it merely because the God of grace has graced you with it. And he calls it a stewardship. So hear that really carefully. Who's gotten that stewardship? Every individual who's believed. God puts into your hands this precious grace. A steward is accountable to his master. It is as though God has given you the keys to this precious thing to use for his glory. If it's still stuck in your pocket and you're not using it, you're dishonoring God. If you act like you don't have the gift... You're dishonoring God. If you're not engaging it, remember these last three are all calls to love one another, be hospitable to one another, now use this gift to serve one another. So this gift is not for you. It's for you to use for 
God's people, the church. Okay, so each has a gift. It's for one another. It's for the church. None of you has the spiritual gift of motherhood. None of you has the spiritual gift of being a business investor for your own sake. None of you have the spiritual gift that does not have any advantage for the church. All right, like no one has the spiritual gift of good hair. Because that's not going to encourage the church. Now, again, God may have granted you good hair. That's not the point. The point is, God has given you a gift as a steward, and it has a target for which it is to be used. This is, you know, to go back to my example, if my teenage daughter said, Dad, can I have some money for dinner? I said, yes, you can. Here's some money for you and all of my other children. Why don't you go out and get it, daughter? And she comes home, and she's got this, like, premium dinner. And the rest of my children go hungry. She has taken my gift and used it inappropriately, right? God has given you a gift, and he says, serve one another. And if you leverage this in the business world and get wealthy and the people of Christ are starving, judgment day is coming. Do you hear how that would change the way you think about that? Judgment day is coming. Reward day is coming. The day in which you meet the one who has given you this stewardship and he is going to heap on you eternal joy and goodness if you serve him well, that day is coming. But can you imagine the shame that will fill your soul if Jesus looks at you, rubs his forehead like he has a headache, and goes, why didn't you use the gift I gave you? Why were you home on so many Sundays? How come you didn't know my people? Well, Jesus, I had a thriving business. I know. I gave you the gifts. You turned to your own selfish purposes. That was for the church. Yeah, but did you see our pool? Where's your pool going to be in eternity? Second Peter says that this earth is going to be remade. It's going to be melted down. That pool you built, that second house that you wanted for your vacations, that investment fund that would make you live in style in your retirement so you could have a Jaguar like you always wanted, it's gone. And the gifts you leverage in this life are to be leveraged for one another. It's varied grace. Number four in the subpoints here. It's varied grace. In other words, we don't all have the same grace. Second Corinthians or excuse me, 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul would talk about this as like a body. Some are eyes, some are ears, some are fingers, some are toes. Some are internal organs, some are external organs, some are visible, some are invisible. Like a body. I'm really glad I'm not one big toe. I'm glad I have toes. I'm really glad I'm not like a cartoon character, just a big eyeball on feet. Right? Like we have a multitude of body parts because it helps us function well as, as a human composition that's complex and interrelated. God used that multiple times to describe his church. So when he says the varied grace of God, he is trying to tell the people that are hearing his letter or being read in the church, listen, you don't all have the same gift. You have different gifts so that there's mutual need, there's interrelated goodness in this, and the body can minister to itself, and there's much grace flowing because someone's deeply hospitable and gifted with the ability to serve others with the stuff God has given them. And someone else doesn't have two pennies to rub together, but man, they know God's word, and when they speak, they lift the souls to heaven. It's varied, it's different. So don't look at someone else and compare. Don't look at someone else and say, well, I don't have that gift. So clearly God did miss me. I don't have a gift. No, the point is, is we have varied gifts, but each one has a gift. So minister according to the gift God has given you. Now he gives two subcategories. And these are kind of the two, you know, we talk about our subpoints here. There's a speaking and a serving kind of category he has here. I don't think he's trying to give huge lists. Rather he says, hey, here's two big ways to think. They're speaking they're serving. So come down with me to verse 11. Whoever speaks should speak as the oracles of God. 
Okay, so there's two big categories, and one is speaking. Let's go speaking first. He says the person who speaks is to speak as though they speak the very oracles of God. This is a technical term used for Old Testament scriptures. It has the idea that you actually speak God's Bible to people. Now here's the thought then, because he's talking about the speaker, that when you are encouraging something with godly truth, you should look at yourself as, as someone who's delivering someone else the very words from God. Now this is intended to be both like impressing you with the value of words, but also reminding you to be very cautious in the words you give to people. I think, I think both are at play here. That is, when I speak, I might want to be thinking, as I'm doing this in a biblical way in, in reflection of this verse, that I have nothing to offer you from Mark's own personal experiences that's valuable. I just want to give you God's truth in a way that connects God's word to you. So I'm going to get my own opinion and try to suck it out of there. And I'm going to try to make sure I deliver to you clearly what God says. But I'm also going to look at this as though I'm an agent of God. Jesus is speaking through me. How important then should our conversations be to us? Have you ever had the experience maybe on a Sunday morning where you see someone and you're just like, hmm, I'm just going to go this way. You know, maybe they just like exhausting. Maybe you don't know what to say to them because they just went through a hard time and you know they just need some comfort and it's really hard to know what to say when someone goes through a hard time you've never been through. Imagine this, God has given you a gift to speak and because of the time you spent studying God's word, you are able to go to the person and minister as though Jesus was present. How precious that is to Jesus Christ who is ministering through you the words of comfort that person in grief needs to hear. And knowing that God is the one. He's the, he's the one using you. You're his agent. And you're speaking the very oracles, the very word, capital W, of God. How important is it that we talk to one another God's truth? The second category, and this is really sub point seven here as you're, as you're thinking through it, is that we serve with the strength God supplies. So, if you speak, you speak the very oracles of God. Verse 11, the second half, whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So who enables you to serve? God's power is the one enabling you. I have had the joy of working on tractors at points in my life, and usually on the back of a tractor, I don't even know what the word stands for, but I always call it the PTO. Some of you guys know exactly what that abbreviation stands for. I have no clue. I just know that's what it's called. It's the power on the back of the tractor. And usually you have an axle or something turning. You hook up the equipment to it, and then you can do something else. And the power of the tractor is harnessed, and all of a sudden you can do more work. And so often you'll attach lawnmower blades to the back of a tractor or some other type of equipment, and it can power that. Here, it's as though God is saying, hey, you're the blades connecting to my PTO power system. Lawnmower blades not connected to the tractor sit there and do nothing. They don't cut anything. You hook it up to the tractor, and all of a sudden these blades come to life and are able to accomplish a ton of work. So as we labor, we do not labor in our own strength. We connect to the power and the ability of Christ, and he empowers us to serve him so that the people of God are served. Now, like We have a particular object that we pursue. It's God's people, and we serve them. Why? Because the end is near. And they need to get ready to see Jesus. And I want to get ready to see Jesus. And only by the power God gives me am I doing things for Jesus. You will never serve God without God. Period. Isn't that an amazing thought? You will never serve God without God. It's almost like a mom in a kitchen with a little nine-year-old girl who desperately wants to cook. And so mom takes and helps her crack the eggs. And when the girl's not looking, pulls some of the shells out. And then holds her hand and scrapes off the flour in the measuring cup. Without mom there, all that happens is messiness. But when mom is there, baking can happen, and it's glorious. It's good. Who's the real baker? 
mom. But if you ask that little nine-year-old, did you cook this? She's like, oh, yeah. Did she? Yeah. Did mom? Yeah. I, I don't even know how to describe the work effort in that type of collaboration. God is at work through us. When you measure a task by your own abilities, by your own energies, by your own power, you're always going to sell yourself short of giving yourself to God. You're always going to not do the things God is calling you to do when you look at your own reservoir of power because you are the tractor blades with no tractor. You need the power of Christ to get this done. Why? Why did God design it as such? Why did he design it so that we must speak from God's scriptures in order to minister well? Why did he make it so that we must have his strength in order to serve well? Look at the next line. In order that. Oh, that's a purpose statement. That's the why. It's coming. What's the why? What does the text tell you? In order that what? In everything, God gets glory. So you're sitting at this table and you're eating this fantastic dessert and you're like, who made this? And the nine-year-old girl goes, I did. And you're like, huh, I don't even know how to make this. And the mom just kind of gently smiles and said, we made it. Right? Like, God calls you to participate, but it's not so that you get glory without him. It's so that his beauty and grace and gifting and glory shines in his church through you. That's why he calls you to join him, rest in him, work through him, and labor for his people so that at the end of the day, God gets glory through you. Second Peter makes it clear we share in his glory. It's not as we're the chump on the sideline getting nothing. We share in his glory. It says that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So God gets glorified through whom? Through Jesus Christ. So, so purpose. God gets glory. It's a Christian glory. That is, it's Christ-centered. Christ is the one who's distributing gifts to his church. He is the agent who's close so that his father gets glory. This is something that has been unleashed on the New Testament church especially. The Old Testament did not have the spiritual gifts the way the New Testament church does. This is a Christian thing so that Christ working in his people gives his Father glory. And then it says, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. I tend to think that, he, that to him speaks to God the Father. But notice, we started with the end is coming. Where do we end this text? It's almost like we come to that courtroom where the rewards are given. And who gets the most glory? God does. To him be glory. So God is doing this. We're looking forward to this judgment day as a motivation for why we serve within the people of God. And at the end of it, he kind of comes full circle and brings us back to the place where God's glorified in this. And we receive the, the joy and the reward of his presence. So he starts with the thought, the end is at hand, and he ends with this picture at the end when God is glorified and Christ is enthroned and having dominion forever, and we are participating in glory and joy forever. Now, time is limiting the amount of application I can give. In a few moments, we're going to end the service, and when I pray, I know we have a, just a short video talking about some of the ministries within our church. But when you look at a text like this, this is a church text. And here's what I mean by that. What should you do? Well, you should recognize Jesus is coming. And in that moment when he comes, Peter uses that to crystallize our expectation. Right? Like when Jesus comes, evaluation happens. When Jesus comes, my opportunity to labor for him is done. When Jesus calls me home, all that I've done in this life is all that's going to be done in preparation for that day. When Jesus comes, all of the stuff of this life that cannot pass into eternity is done. My ministry for the people who are eternal, 
is going to secure for me eternal glory or eternal shame in glory. As in, there's reward and, and honor that seems to be permanent and eternal. Isn't that Jesus' point, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot corrupt, indicates that these are not temporary, these are actually eternal treasures we're given. It's not as though God gives us a crown, and it's like, for a day, you have a crown, and then you throw it at his feet, and you got nothing. That's not the point. You're going to be eternally rewarded. Think about that. And let that energize your prayer. Pray for eternal things. Pray for people with eternal goals in mind. Commit yourself to loyally loving God's people, loving them towards Jesus. Commit yourself to costly care. Commit yourself to laboring with the gifts God has given to you, whether speaking or serving, in the power and the grace and in the word that God gives us, so that you speak as the oracles and you serve in the strength so that God gets glory through Christ in his church. So that on judgment day, you stand as victor, rewarded, honored, and treasuring what God treasures. Who is the target of your ministry? Look around the room. These folks. The one God has put you into a body with. The one who walks with you. Your believing family. The little squalling babies in the room over there so that you can serve the people in here by not having to put up with the squalling babies in here. These are the ways we serve one another. We love one another. We serve by, in a few minutes, moving some chairs. Maybe seeing someone discouraged. Letting them know we've been praying for them. That the God of comfort would comfort them in their affliction. Or maybe we see someone we haven't seen in a while that we have been praying for. We just simply walk to them and say, hey, how are you doing? We don't even tell them we've been praying for them. We ask how they're doing. We ask the insightful questions because we want to know how they're doing. We don't want to just hear like, oh, pretty good. How are you? We want to hear more. And for the people who are in those long paths of suffering, sometimes they will never know how much we have prayed for them. But because of the coming judgment and their impending reward before God, we pray. You know, there are people in the church that are getting prayed for all the time because we know that they're just in a place of long-time trial. And so we pray. And I'm calling you to pray. I'm calling for you to be hospitable. I'm calling for you to evaluate your giftedness and serve with the strength that God supplies. This is not a normal church message, is it? If you are a consumer and not a servant, you have a bad theology. You need to repent. If you have been coming for a long time and you're just kind of floating on the periphery and you're not doing much, judgment's coming. I want you to stand before Jesus thrilled with his assessment, not ashamed. So labor. Some of you are so faithful. And you are heaping up for yourselves a rich reward when Jesus welcomes you home. There are men and women in our church who probably should stir within us all a jealousy to be standing in their place on Judgment Day. Sweet, faithful laborers for Christ. Man, wouldn't that be cool if that was all of us? Where the mark of someone who's been in this assembly is that when they see Jesus, Jesus says, this is my A-team. This is the all-star group. This body stirred each other up to love and good works. Man, you could not be there very long without them pushing you towards Jesus. Sinners were helped and loved and prayed for, not shamed and embarrassed. They prayed when no one knew they were praying. They labored in the quiet hours of the morning, pleading for grace for one another. They cared for one another with an unfailing hospitality. They gave deeply and always. They forgave when hurt hurt and hurt again. They ministered with the grace that I'd given them and then prayed for more grace so they could serve more. That's Crossway. Wouldn't that be cool if Jesus said that about us? Well, to put it bluntly, 
It starts with each. That is you in your seat making a commitment to serve Christ. Don't be startled with when um, I'm done praying, they're going to start a video. I just don't want you to be jolted, so I will give you a moment of silence as I go to prayer. What I would like you to do is, even during the video, consider. Consider eternity. I mean, if, if you're just to make a financial analogy here, imagine that you have 40 years left and they're $40. How much of each dollar do you want to give to Jesus? You know what I'm saying? Like, you have 40 years of life left and you're going to lay them down. How much of each year do you want to give to Jesus? Don't be stingy. But don't be foolish either. I feel like my family requires a lot from me. My work requires a lot from me. So thank you for that. Um, I, there are a lot of things in my life I need to do that God has called me to do. But I dare not steal from the one another in order to have a nicer home at my address or in order to have a more acceptable investment in my children's education. I dare not steal from the one another's of this text. So would you take a few moments? I'm going to give you about 30 seconds of quietness, and then I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to kind of have a little bit of a video that tells you about some of the ministries and church you can get involved in. Father in heaven, we feel a little bit embarrassed to ask for more grace, having been given so much. You have been rich to us through Christ, because it is through him we are made righteous. And yet, even in this passage in Timothy, you remind us that we have been forgiven our sins so that we might live to righteousness, that is, we might have lives empowered by your Son, to live in a way that is right. So I pray that you'd help us to invest in heaven, those things that are eternal, those things that please Jesus, who is our life. I ask that you would strengthen within our church the resolve to love like Christ has loved, sacrificially, faithfully, willing to do what you call us to do, that we might promote in others goodness and Christ-likeness and faithfulness to you. Lord, I pray that you would stir our church up to be delighted, excited about the opportunity to serve you. Father, guard us from the heart that looks at ministry as an obligation of work that we would rather not have. It is so easy to have the spirit that looks at the pressure, the need, uh, the expectation of others, and feel imposed upon. Lord, forgive us for that feeling. Help us to think of Jesus and how good it is to be able to serve him. Thank you for today because you've given it so that we might serve you. I pray that each day, Lord, you'd wake us up with the thought that we have an opportunity this day with our breath in our lungs, with our heart pulsing in our chest to serve you with those gifts. Lord, I ask for our church that you'd stir us up to an excited prospect of heaven by helping us live faithfully today. I thank you so much for our church. It is filled with rich servants who keep getting richer as they serve you more faithfully. Uh, Lord, I am so privileged to be part of this church. I am humbled by the spiritual giants in the room. Lord, I pray with a little bit of jealousy that you would make me more faithful. I pray for those in the room that feel the conviction and a little bit of weight because they need to be more faithful and they know it and they know they're not doing well. Would you strengthen their heart both to turn from the selfishness maybe that has described them in the past and give them a heart of sacrifice for their Savior. Help them to love Jesus more than moments of quietness and rest, to love Jesus more than the desire to please self. Help them to love Jesus more than um, getting a good job and having a little bit of extra money. Lord, help us to love our Lord more than anything in this life. And by doing this, we know that we'll please him. And so we know that we'll be warmly and richly welcomed when we see him in glory. Lord, thank you for this glorious word 
that shapes and fashions and transforms us into the image of Christ. Thank you for your scripture. I ask today that you will honor it, that it will do its work among us. Lord, give us a willingness and a desire and a thoughtfulness so that we work hard for the coming day when Jesus holds us accountable and rewards us forever. Amen.